Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Blokeology Evidence-Based Health, Fitness and Lifestyle. My name's Dr. Ewan Lawson and in this episode I've got an interview with Professor David Cranston. Now David is a urological surgeon and a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. He's a professor down in Oxford um, who does research into various areas which he tells us a, a, us a little more about but particularly now into high intensity focused ultrasound. So the topic for today was all about prostate cancer and PSA testing. A big topic for blokes, a big topic for men. Should you get a PSA test? What are the potential advantages? What are the, perfect, what are the potential disadvantages? It's quite a complex area. The current evidence overall for screening is not um, all that strong, but there are subtleties and nuances around it, and we cover lots of different angles to that. So I hope you find that useful. I certainly found it incredibly enlightening, and it was really helpful to chat to David about it all. Uh, thank you all, as usual, for your support of the podcast. It's very much welcome. If you are just new along, then um, great to have you here. Um, and um, if you want to get a little bit more involved, then sign up for the newsletter at blokeology.io forward slash journal. Um, I have now moved the newsletter to Friday so that there's an episode one week and a newsletter um, the next Friday. So there's something coming out each Friday um, just to help you uh, help everyone along a little bit. Uh, this should be the second episode now um, of the podcast where there's a transcript. So um, we got the first one out with um, speaking to Catherine Albany Ward last week and the transcript is available on the website if you want to look up any details um, on that. Um, otherwise, let's get on. There is a little bit of um, background noise on David's side of the interview this time. He was sitting outside. Um, it looked absolutely glorious where he was, um, but we had some difficulties with a lawnmower that came along, so we moved, but then he did get a little bit of wind noise at times. Um, I, it's quite possible you won't even realise if you're listening to the podcast outside, but if you're inside or um, in a car or something, you may pick up that wind noise. Um, but I don't think it detracts from some incredibly useful stuff that David goes through. Um, so the first thing I did was chat to David and find out a little bit about how he um, got into urology and to tell us a little bit about his career. So, um, yeah, so I qualified in uh, 1975, having failed my medical finals and had to do an extra six months and um, then uh, ended up doing uh, jobs down in Bournemouth and uh, Whips Cross in London, then went back to Bristol, which is where I trained to do an anatomy demonstrator and then went down to Exeter where I got FRCS and uh, first time, having failed finals first time. And then I went to Bath uh, as a registrar for two and a half years, went up to Oxford in 1983 to do a research in kidney transplantation, did a defil in that with Peter Morris, who was head of department there, leading transplant surgeon in the world. And uh, then actually almost fell into urology by mistake. I applied for quite a few jobs in vascular and transplantation, um, but ended up in urology, which has actually been a wonderful career. Um, just uh, retired from the NHS, but I've always had a very big research interest um, in the, on the urological side. It's been on the major kidney cancers, and we had a auto transplant program, national auto transplant program, which I helped helped to set up, whereby we were taking the very complex renal tumours from around the country 
taking the kidney out, dissecting the tumour out, putting the kidney back together and then transplanting it back into the patient because we think that there were about 40 patients every year with bilateral renal tumours or tumours in a solitary kidney which just had their kidney removed and went on to dialysis and we reckon we could stop about half of that. So that was my urological interest um, in terms of specialty. Uh, in terms of research, um, my current research is linked with high-intensity focused ultrasound um, across all specialities. We have a big research link with China, which we've had for the last 20 years, and going out there again in July. So this is looking at ultrasound at very high intensity for treating cancers and uterine fibroids. Um, we're hoping to, although you can treat prostate cancer transrectally with a high-intensity focused ultrasound machine. Um, we're hoping to uh, modify that in association with China and get uh, better high-intensity focused ultrasound treatment for prostate cancer. Um, sounds as if a lawnmower might be coming, but hopefully uh, won't disturb us too much. So that's my um, major interest at the moment is um, high-intensity focused ultrasound. But you know, the whole realm of prostate cancer has been of interest to me, in, especially in terms of the fact that you need to operate on about 20 people, uh, 30 people to save one person's life. And I think the whole question of um, what one does and what one doesn't do with that is very interesting. And although I haven't, I don't do the operations for prostate cancer, I have uh, a major interest in as it were, the management of it in terms of what one should be doing and what one shouldn't be doing. Sure. Well, I absolutely want to explore prostate cancer a little bit more. The first thing I should ask you, because you've been in the NHS since 1975, I think you said you qualified there, what, what have, and you just recently retired. What have been your reflections on the changes in the NHS in the past 40 years? Yes, well, I think... Uh, it's it has changed considerably. I've had a very um, a wonderful career in the NHS. Um, I think that the things that I've seen, which have been uh, sad over the last few years in particular, is the lack of the team spirit. Uh, you know, I think as juniors we worked incredibly hard, but you always felt very much part of a team. I remember. Um, you know, early one morning as a houseman, when my uh, boss phoned the switchboard and said, get hold of Dr. Cranston, they said, oh, Dr. Cranston's not on until nine o'clock today. And he said, when I'm on, he's on, just get him for me. Uh, but actually, it made you feel really part of a team. And I think one's lost uh, that team atmosphere. I think there's a huge amount of more paperwork now. Um, I think there are more complaints uh, amongst people. I think, you know, when I started uh, in the 1970s, 1980s, I think, you know, the older generation is hugely grateful for the NHS. I think um, there tend to be more complaints now about it. There's a huge amount more paperwork. Um, and, you know, from that point of view, I think it's it's sad. I mean, having said that, I still think that if you're in a uh, major accident or need major um, surgery or specialist surgery it's still a fantastic place to be and certainly if I had, was in a major road traffic accident or if I was in uh, um, elsewhere I'd uh, much rather be in the NHS than anywhere else. It's certainly a system under pressure 
I mean, and there are there are multiple factors, aren't there? And I think all healthcare healthcare systems are suffering from that challenge of being able to cope with, you know, an aging population and increasing consumer demands. And yeah. the NHS remains it's a fantastic. You know, the fact it's available to all remains a tremendous positive. But yes, it's quite a different place to perhaps the you know even the last ten or twenty years. It's moved on rapidly, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So I thought we could we should move on to prostate cancer. Yep. and find out a little bit about that. Now, it's it's a perhaps it's a slightly different type of cancer to some in that it's got such a variety in the way it presents and the kind of you know, p- the potential different types of it. And I wondered if you could just in a, a few sentences give a little pen picture of we've got we've got a range of listeners. Some of them will be doctors and medics, but many of people are listening won't be yeah. in that side of things at all. A little bit about prostate cancer and exactly just to give an overview of it as a disease. Yeah, sure. So I think the thing about prostate cancer is that a huge number of men have it and probably most of them don't know that they've got it. Um, people have looked at post-mortem specimens of the prostate of men who've died of other cause- causes and you know, probably 50 to 60% of 60-year-olds, if you looked at the whole of their prostate, would have a tiny focus of prostate cancer. You know, 70% of 70-year-olds, 80% of 80-year-olds. And most people will die of something different uh, rather than the prostate cancer. Having said that, it is still uh, a, a large number of people do die of prostate cancer in this country, but far, far fewer than those who actually have it. And there was an American... A surgeon years ago who said if a cure is possible is it necessary and if a cure is necessary is it possible well i think we may have moved on uh, from that somewhat but certainly not completely and uh, you need to treat about 30 people now to save one person's life now the other thing to say about prostate cancer is that there are ways of diagnosing it you grade it with the so-called gleason grade and you look at the uh, most aggressive uh, number of cells and grade it basically a gleason three uh, there are so-called gleason ones and twos but we certainly don't use them in this country so gleason three is the lowest grade of prostate cancer Gleason 4 is the next, and Gleason 5 is the most aggressive. And what you do is when you have a biopsy, you look at the uh, number of cells there, the number of cancer cells, and you grade them. If the most are grade 3, then you put uh, grade 3 first, and then if there's a secondary lot of grade 4, then it might be Gleason grade 3 plus 4, which is 7. Or it might be Gleason 3 plus 3, which is 6. Or it might be if the m- more aggressive ones are Gleason 4, and the, then the next uh, number is 3, it might be the other way around. So it might be 4 and 3. So you get this grading. And basically, Gleason 3 plus 3 is the lowest grade. Gleason, that's uh, a Gleason 6 grade. In fact, some insurance companies would not recognize that as cancer. And uh, a lot of people, if you have a Gleason 3 uh, plus 3 cancer, would suggest that active monitoring is the sensible thing for that. So basically, there is the localized prostate cancer. Um, uh, You also, of course, look at the PSA blood test. Um, There's the localized prostate cancer. And then there are some people that have metastatic prostate cancer where the prostate cancer is spread uh, elsewhere throughout the bones and those often 
people often have a PSA level, um, you know, maybe in the hundreds or even the thousands. And in those cases, certainly they're not suitable for localized treatment, but they are uh, suitable for hormone treatment. A chap called Huggins got the Nobel Prize for showing that prostate cancer in the majority of cases is hormone sensitive. Um, so if the uh, testosterone makes the prostate cancer grow, and I had a patient once but when I was talking to him about giving him some treatment to take away, decrease the testosterone levels, he said, oh, you mean it's a bit like if you take away the cheese, the mice die, which I thought was a lovely analogy, and I've often used that on other patients. So with very advanced prostate cancer, uh, the way in which you treat it is by stopping the testosterone levels, which you, we used to do by removing the testicles. Nowadays, we do medically with various uh, tablets and drugs and so on. Yeah. So that hormone treatment sounds obviously a very important part of treatment of even advanced prostate cancer. Slightly terrifying the prospect of having your testicles removed for chaps. So I guess that's one of the fears of prostate cancer, that kind of the treatment. That's a, it feels... Well, perhaps one of the most important things to get across as you've described in their prostate cancer is this, it's, you know, this enormous spread from the kind of, you know, aggressive metastatic disease that's in your bones. And there's been some highly publicized celebrity cases of, of men that have died of metastatic prostate cancer in recent years um, versus the kind of, you know, you'll die with it rather than because of it. And that's one of the real challenges with prostate cancer and the difficulties of finding treatments that are um, that are effective. What, it, what, as well as the hormonal treatment for the more, for you know, for particularly for the more aggressive or um, worrying prostate cancers. What does prostate cancer treatment tend to look like these days? Well, if it's localized prostate cancer, then uh, there are a number of different options. It's quite interesting because if you have acute appendicitis, then nobody disagrees with the fact that you need your appendix out. Um, but uh, if you ask uh, people how they treat localized prostate cancer, then uh, there are different options uh, depending on the stage and the grade. Active monitoring, uh, of course, is the uh, least uh, aggressive. But then there's radical prostatectomy, which is often done with the da Vinci robot these days. There is radiotherapy. There is uh, seeds, uh, radioactive seeds you can put into the prostate. There is high-intensity focused ultrasound treatment of the prostate. Um, so there's quite a spectrum of um, treatments that you can have for localized prostate cancer. The interesting thing is that most people who have localized prostate cancer suitable for treatment, the majority would be diagnosed on the basis of a raised PSA level, and they are unlikely to have any symptoms. If they have symptoms and they're suitable for local treatment, then most of the symptoms are likely to be from the benign side of the prostate rather than the prostate cancer. If you've got symptoms that are due to prostate cancer, then uh, you're less likely to be uh, eligible for local treatment because it probably means that it's locally quite advanced. Yeah. So, again, there's an important thing to differentiate there that I wanted to make sure we mentioned was the difference between, and we'll come back to this with PSA in a minute, but the difference between screening, of course, and men with symptoms. And that's an important thing for us to be clear of, certainly from the GP perspective, that if you present with symptoms, 
doing a PSA is going to be part of that assessment. But if you're asymptomatic and we're getting into the realms of screening, then the discussion about PSA is is subtly different. So, you know, there is no uh, approved national screening program for prostate cancer just because of all the issues associated with it in terms of, uh, you know, is it actually going to reduce the uh, number of people dying of prostate cancer uh, as opposed, I mean, one has to weigh up the benefits and the risks. You know, a lot of people who have localized treatment for prostate cancer start off with no symptoms but are diagnosed on the basis of a raised PSA and then end up having uh, treatment which potentially will make them impotent or incontinent and, uh, you know, maybe less so than in the old days, especially with the Da Vinci robot. But nevertheless, there is a substantial uh, degree of certainly morbidity associated with those treatments. Yeah, I certainly wanted to make sure we mentioned that because I think that's the it's the risk of overdiagnosis with screen or overtreatment perhaps with screening is the real um, is one of the reasons that PSA as a screening test tends to fall down and hasn't been widely adopted as a as a kind of you know a national screening program. It's those side effects that we can from the treatment from you know, your urinary ones as you say incontinence, bowel symptoms as well, isn't there? And erectile dysfunction, other sexual dysfunction kind of problems that can happen. I, I don't. We don't want to scare people about having who are potentially going to have that kind of treatment. But it's about being realistic that a small percentage of men will get those problems. And if you're only fixing a small percentage of men with the test, weighing up those risks and benefits, um, and it has so far it hasn't come out in favour of PSA as a screening test. No, that's right. And I mean, obviously, it also depends on on age and so on. I mean, I think you've got a high PSA, you know, in the younger age group with um, on biopsia. You know, fairly aggressive prostate cancer. Then I think treatment is is obviously um, sensible and advisable. If, on the other hand, you know you're in your you know sixties or or seventies and the PSA is particularly high and it's a low grade cancer, then uh, uh, active monitoring is often the much the better treatment. Yeah. And it's interesting in some of the papers that have been published recently. My colleagues. Freddie Handy, who's the Nuffield Professor of Surgery in Oxford, one of the leading prostate cancer surgeons in the UK, um, did a big uh, randomised study, was involved in that. And uh, what they said was actually the, the thing that has the most impact on the quality of life is actually the diagnosis of prostate cancer. So if you can delay that diagnosis without any adverse effect to the patient, then you're probably doing them a good... Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about PSA. So prostate specific antigen. I mean, I can you I, a little bit about its history as a test and how it's been, how you've used it over the years? Certainly when I um, started, um, you, you looked at the acid phosphatase level and so PSA, but PSA testing for prostate cancer has been around for what, probably 30, 30 plus years. And uh, the question is, what level is it that you take as a level for being worried about prostate cancer? And, I mean, that's debatable. There is this level. Um, it's obviously age-dependent, um, but the levels that are normally talked about, depending on age, are three, four, five. So if you sort of take four as the the level, the thing about that is that there are a lot of people who've got levels that are above four, 
um, who do not have prostate cancer and there would be people with levels below four that do have prostate cancer. So if you put the level down to three, if you put the level down to two and a half, you'd pick up a lot more people with prostate cancer, but that's not necessarily a good thing because a lot of these people would not need treatment anyway. So it always has struck me as slightly um, obscure as to why a level of uh, four was chosen. And certainly um, my argument is that, you know, would if you raise the level to 10, would you uh, decrease the uh, would you increase the death rate for prostate cancer, uh, to which I personally doubt. And there are certainly people who have PSAs up, you know, higher than 10 that do not have prostate cancer. Uh, if you have a very large prostate, your PSA tends to be high. I have patients with PSAs of 20 who've been extensively investigated and no uh, prostate cancer has been found. There are other things that put it up as well. For example, prostatitis will put the PSA level up. So, um, you know, you have to sort of bear these things in mind. So, I mean, the, the classic um, uh, guidance at the moment is if your PSA is, let's say, above four, then you'd be investigated for prostate cancer and then you'd go on to have, well, these days probably MRI scan of the prostate and prostate plus or minus prostate biopsies. Some people would do the two regardless. Other people would say, well, if the PSA, if the MRI scan doesn't show prostate cancer, then we wouldn't do a biopsy. So again, you know, you talk to different people and you find different uh, uh things that people will say about that yeah and um i think the sensitivity and the specificity of the psa test is the thing has just never been that great um uh, the mri isn't uh, there's obviously that risk with over investigation at, at being at four that everybody gets referred and as a gp if you see somebody as soon as their prostate's raised you've probably got to send them up to the urologists to have that conversation about further investigation um, MRI obviously is not invasive. I mean, it takes up a bit. There's, there's anxiety associated with it of having tests and all that kind of stress. There's the old, there's the old kind of um, it's joke that PSA stands for promote stress and anxiety. That's been kind of used. That PS is that's often used by GPs when just speaking to patients. But once you get to that point, and once it's done, you find it's up. You've not got a lot of choice but to go ahead and investigate. But even biopsies have some risks, don't they? There are there is a risk of bleeding. There is a risk of infection as well. Risk of sepsis with biopsies, and I mean, although it's incredibly unusual, yeah. there have been people who've died after prostate biopsies. Um, but um, there's certainly a risk of infection and sepsis. Yeah, uh, but no question either. We've all heard stories as well of the men who've been nagged to go in to get their PSA checked by their relatives and have been discovered to have, you know, well, in go through the process, been found to have prostate cancer and would regard themselves as having had their lives saved or significantly improved by having had that by PSA, um, you know, and PSA is responsible for that. So we've all, we all hear those tales as well. Yes, that that's absolutely right. And I mean, a lot of celebrities have said that now, that's not necessarily true that their lives have been saved by it, but of course it depends on how, um, you know, you know their perception. I, I remember years ago when I was in the United States, um, uh, who historically have been much more aggressive in actual treatment of prostate cancer, although you wonder how much that's sort of financially driven. And certainly 
when uh, people get more um, financial reward for um, active monitoring and seeing patients again and again over a period of time, the um, rate for radical treatment has gone down. Um, but I remember somebody saying, you know, as soon as he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, regardless of the stage or the grade, he said it was like having a rattlesnake in your pocket and he wanted it out. And so there are a lot of people who the very, you know, word cancer means um, I, I want to get rid of it. So I think, you know, and I often say to people, you know, I don't stop people having uh, radical treatment if that's what they want. But sometimes I see quite a lot of people coming to me for second opinions who say, you know, I saw the surgeon. He said all these options are open. And I said to him, or my wife said to him, you know, what would you do? And he wouldn't tell me what he'd do. He just said, well, these are the options, you know, you need to decide, which I don't think is very good as a professional because people come to you for professional advice. And, um, you, you know, it's it's difficult because on the one hand, surgeons tend to promote surgery, radiotherapists tend to promote radiotherapy, um, but people do want some some guidelines as to as to what they do. Um, so yeah. the whole thing is quite difficult. But um, yeah, I, and I think GPs we probably are guilty of promoting watchful waiting. That's our that the one that we turn to. That's probably the best thing to promote. <laughs> But you're right, and it's a, but it's a very patient choice-driven kind of philosophy these days, isn't it? And sometimes there aren't good choices, and it's very hard not to um, impose your personal view on those patients as well. Sometimes, and, and as you say, sometimes patients want that personal view. They 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 they're either in such a bind they don't know which way to go that actually they just need that kind of. I'm mean, not 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 to tell them what to do, but to help guide them. And I always say that sometimes actually it's as much as what's in your head as what's in your prostate actually because, um, you know, some people can't stand the thought of cancer and want it removed at whatever cost and other people are sort of fairly, you know, much more relaxed about the fact that, you know, I think if you say to people, you know, the chances of you coming to any harm if we just watch this for a while and see what your PSA does and if it continues to rise – then you know treatment is available later on it was it was very interesting in some of the studies that have been done um when they tried to get people into randomized studies when uh, the surgeons you know when they went to see the surgeons um and were given the option of watchful waiting radiotherapy or having a radical prostatectomy um a lot of the surgeons would say um, well, you know, you've got cancer, we can take it out um, and get rid of it. Or you can have radiotherapy, which will probably get rid of it. Or if you um, don't want either, then I guess we could just watch it. And then, of course, you know, people hear that and they say, well, uh, you know, I'd much rather get rid of it. When they recorded some of these interviews and then trained some of the nurses to do it, um, you know, then, then the nurses would say, well, you know, there are three options, you know, you can, we can remove it now, we can give you radiotherapy now, but, or we could just monitor it. And by monitoring it, it means that we will just look at the PSA, we will see what happens to the PSA, and you're not going to be barred from having treatment later on if things seem to change. And the evidence that we've got at the moment is that it's unlikely to do you any damage if we just monitor it carefully and just watch things. And, you know, if you present it to the people like that, then a lot of them are much happier just to sit and watch it. So it does very much depend on, you know, what you say and how you present it as to what people will do. 
Yeah, there's an interesting dynamic there, I think, with that kind of approach. And as you say, I think there's a real societal fear of cancer, you know, not helped perhaps by constant, I understand that, you know, the constant telethons and charity events and there's raising awareness. And I know that they've moved away slightly from this sort of the fear element, but I think it does play into that, that people do think that, you know, this you could almost be better describing some of this as prostate disease rather than prostate cancer, that it isn't, you, do, you don't necessarily rush in and chop it all out immediately. And those options don't cease to be available in the future if you choose to watch for a, for a short period i think that's the important thing so it's just the idea of sort of active monitoring of it and you know see what the trend in the psa is decide from when you're going to do an mri if it goes up are you going to do another mri etc etc and it's probably worth pointing out that there are some groups where there's slightly stronger evidence of benefit isn't there for psa testing particularly screening Yes, I think that's right. And I think if you, you know, there is, if you've got a, a very strong history of prostate cancer in the family, if you've got, um, if you're picking it up at a young age, um, you know, in your 50s and so on. Um, and uh, so, yes, yeah, so I'm certainly not against, um, uh, you know, advising people to have radical treatment in um, in appropriate situations. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, so your family history is one thing. Um, the younger men, sort of 55 to 69, they're a bit more. Once you get beyond the age of 70, it becomes, it, it's an individual decision, of course, but it becomes less likely. And I think African-American um, ethnicity as well, they've got an increased risk, isn't they, and are better off being tested. Perhaps might have more to gain from screening. Yes, and um, I think the thing is that, uh, you know, if you're operating, you, you don't, you know, it's you can't cannot um, look at the mortality basically of, of people because you, you, well, in terms of mortality, you need uh, ten, fifteen years, which is why you know if somebody at the age of seventy or seventy-five is picked up with prostate cancer, uh, you, you're not going to see any benefit to life expectancy probably for fifteen years. So. Uh, it also depends on morbidity and mortality. I mean, I saw a patient a few weeks ago who had a PSA of 12 at the age of 82 and uh, was given radiotherapy, which I think is almost, almost negligent. And he had incontinence, impotence, uh, hematuria, and a huge amount of symptoms over the last three years and, and now is at the age of 86 and you know if, if he had just been monitored or even if he'd just been given a low dose of hormones he wouldn't have had those symptoms i think that was a very bad medicine yeah there's a really interesting um i think margaret mccartney wrote about this in her book the patient paradox and there's a really interesting um aspect around screening and treatment that as you you've mentioned there that once you know about it it's like the rattlesnake in your pocket as you described it that gentleman it's very hard for people if then and if they're not given appropriate support by healthcare professionals just to let it go yeah. but the, the paradox is that patients are grateful with even bad screening programs they're grateful because if they haven't got the disease then they're happy and if they yeah. have got the disease they're delighted because they think well i can now get rid of it yeah. even and the the the, the risks of over diet the risks of over treatment and the side effects almost never get taken into consideration so yeah. i mean yes. if i had one message for people when they're looking at this is just to really look hard there it's not it's not a straightforward subject there are there are there are a lot of complications and nuances but what we perhaps underestimate really badly are the potential risks and harms of the treatments and the investigation process as well 
Yes. I mean, I think part of the problem is that you get on a treadmill, which is then very difficult to get off. Um, you need a sensible uh, discussion with a sensible, uh, you know, urological surgeon or a radiotherapy doctor if you are having, you know, if you're diagnosed with it. I think if you, on the NHS system, if you go and, uh, you know, get on, you know, see a junior doctor, you know, there are certain protocols that they will follow regardless in terms of, you know, it's above four, you need to have an MRI scan, you need to have potentially prostatic biopsies. And then once you've had the diagnosis, then, um, you know, you have all the sort of discussions of treatment and some surgeons are much more aggressive than others in treating you. So uh, it is a bit like if you're not careful, you get on a treadmill that you can't easily get off. Yeah, you get into the system. So um, let me ask you a final thing, David. What, what's your personal view on PSA? Where do, you, where do you fall on this, whether you'd have a test or not? I've thought long and hard about this, as one can imagine, being a urological surgeon involved in it. Um, I did have uh, my PSA done when I was 50. It was 2.2. It's been rising slowly since. It's above 4 now, um, although not much above 4. Uh, it's been fluctuating it up and down. Uh, in my mid-60s, I have decided that I am not going to have anything done until it reaches 10. If it reaches 10 by the time that I'm probably 75 i might have an mri scan if i get to the age of 80 i um would let it go up to 40 probably and then i would think about going on to something like 50 milligrams of biclutamide i think the other thing that i would just like to say is that even when you have metastatic disease it doesn't mean that you're going to die within a few months i had a patient some years ago at the age of 80 who had a psa of 2000 he had multiple metastatic disease throughout his bones. He was in a wheelchair. We put him on hormone treatment. Within about three months, his PSA came down to six. For the next eight years, he was flying out to Austria on holiday every year until it finally caught up. So uh, even if you have metastatic disease, actually, there is treatment available, which is getting better and better. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, I think my feeling personally is that I wouldn't have a PSA test. I'm still, I've got, I've got three or four years till I'm 50, but um, I think I probably wouldn't because I am more in fear of the, the com com consequences of over-treatment as it stands. But it, I, 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 would, I think it's important that you had it and to highlight that you had it, but that we don't come down too negatively on the side of PSA because it is still an individual decision. And I know it's offered on the NHS and the evidence kind of, you know, the evidence is marginal in some regards. I mean, I have uh, urological surgeons who are um, high profile in the British Association of Urological Surgeons who are uh, approaching their 60s who've never had their PSA tested and do not want to have it tested. Others, on the other hand, have um, had it tested and some have had radical prostatectomies. So within you know, the urological surgeon um, community alone, there is a huge range of whether people want to have it done or don't want to have it done yeah that highlights it just highlights the um challenges nicely doesn't it uh, so david thank you so much i should ask you where could we find out a little bit more about what you're up to your work and research these days so the best thing is the nuffield department of surgery uh, website in oxford which is www.nds that's for nuffield department of surgery .ox.ac.uk which has got my research interests, especially the ongoing one, which is high-intensity focus ultrasound, and my uh, links with China, which I've had over the last uh, 20 years.
David, that is fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time. That's a pleasure. Very nice to talk to you. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blokeology.io. You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blokeology.io. Thanks again. Thanks again.